0: located in Brighton, Massachusetts. St. John's Seminary serves the Archdiocese of Boston and over 20 other dioceses and religious institutes, training Roman Catholic priests and providing a variety of other training programs in theology and pastoral ministry. My name is Father Romanus Cesario, I teach Moral Theology here at St. John's and I am beginning a six-part series entitled The Elements of Moral Theology. This program forms part of the International Catholic University's series in Catholic studies and it is meant to offer to the student an overview of the basic elements that form part of any coherent exposition of Catholic moral theology. The course indeed could have been entitled An Introduction to Catholic Moral Theology and indeed The book, soon to be published by the Catholic University of America Press, will bear that title. That book is based on these lectures and has been developed over the course of some ten years in an effort to present an introduction to Catholic moral theology that takes account of the great tradition, especially as mediated of St. Thomas Aquinas, but at the same time is fully informed by the post concilia magisterium of Pope John Paul II, especially as that magisterium has addressed fundamental questions of moral theology, especially again in the encyclical Veritatis Splendor. The six part series that those of you who have begun to listen to these taped sessions will hear, runs as follows. The first session will answer the question, what is moral theology? Why is moral theology called, in the tradition and by Pope John Paul II, a science of teleology? a science about the good of the human person, and above all, what differentiates moral theology from moral philosophy or ethics. The second lecture turns to certain pre-ethical considerations. We will look at the doctrine of the imago Dei, that is to say, we will consider The anthropology that accompanies Christian moral theology? What vision of the human person, indeed what vision of man, is required in order to make sense out of Catholic teaching about the happy life? The third lesson treats natural law. This is a topic that is familiar to many of you. It is a topic treated both by theologians and philosophers. My concern will be to show why natural law is properly part of a theological investigation or theological discourse. We will take up the theme that St. Thomas Aquinas himself sets down in the Summa Theologiae, Namely, that natural law is a participation in eternal law. and I will explicate that by definition that I have adopted for eternal law, namely how God knows the world to be. The important word in that definition, of course, is God's knowing, how God knows how the divine knowledge establishes the paradigms for our activity, our free activity. The fourth lecture then turns to consider human action as it is situated within the natural law and within the larger teaching about what constitutes the happy life. How do we understand and evaluate what flows from our person? Again, the guidance for this lecture comes from the revealed sources of Christian doctrine, illumined by the Magisterium, and it will be our purpose to understand human action within a theological context and with special reference to the virtue of prudence, which is that virtue especially ordered, especially designed, so to speak, to govern our human actions. In the fifth lecture, our attention will be directed to a question which perhaps many of you listening to these tapes would consider the most important question that moral theology has to address, namely how to evaluate a moral action. And those of you who have studied the Catechism of the Catholic Church will know that even now in the 21st century, Church continues to rely upon a classical tripartite analysis of human action, object end, and circumstance, as a way of guiding us into a proper understanding of what constitutes a human action and how to evaluate that action as either good or bad. The sixth and final lecture will address the virtues, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the charisms of the Christian life. In this lecture we will attempt to, as it were, put flesh onto the doctrine of the first five lectures by giving examples of how the virtues, the Christian virtues, prudence and justice, fortitude and temperance, faith, hope and charity, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety and fear of the Lord, and other charisms mentioned in the New Testament and traditionally treated by moral theologians, form as it were a composite picture of the Christian saint Indeed, if we take the catechism seriously they form a picture of Christ himself who is the exemplar model of every saint. The classroom from which these lectures are being given is dedicated to the memory of Richard Cardinal Cushing. He was a conciliar father of the Second Vatican Council Archbishop of Boston during the mid-part of the 20th century. And his motto, ut cognoscante, that they may know thee, that they may know thee, was taken from the Gospel of St. John and Jesus's final discourse to his disciples. Cardinal Cushing's picture hangs in this room. And as I have it standing in front of me during the course of these lectures. It is his Episcopal motto that comes to my mind, Ut cognoscante. It is Jesus's prayer that his disciples would know the Father. And it seems to me as we begin these lectures in moral theology, Cardinal Cushing's motto is a very helpful one for us to recall because the purpose of moral theology is ultimately just that, that is to say, what Jesus prayed for, that they may know thee, and, Father, and know me, Jesus says, that is to know the one whom you have sent. We need that kind of knowledge for our happiness and well-being. Without it, we wither and die, and these lectures then are an effort to help those of you who are interested in learning about Catholic moral theology, to come to a better understanding of that science, but above all, to come to an understanding and indeed an appreciation of the great vocation that Christ makes possible for his disciples. Namely, that we would come to know God and indeed to become like him. At this moment now, I will turn to begin the first lecture. It is important for us to understand the nature of the discourse that we are about to undertake. It is perhaps especially important to know the nature of the discourse we are about to undertake since it deals with moral theology, which has a counterpart or equivalent, as it were, Equivalent discussion in another science which is not theological, namely moral philosophy. The differences here between moral theology and dogmatic theology are important and I want to mention it before we begin so that we will understand and appreciate the need to precise what makes moral theology. Recently, the Holy Father has written an encyclical on faith and reason, and he has spoken about, or used the metaphor, I should say, of the two wings whereby the human person is able to ascend to God, the wing of reason and the wing of faith. That metaphor is especially apt for moral theology because everything that we will talk about in terms of the content of moral theology has its analog in moral philosophy. St. Thomas himself, when asked the question whether the revealed Christian doctrine adds anything to the content of natural law, said, no, there are no new precepts. As we proceed, and especially as we proceed in the second half of these lectures, we will see that the distinctiveness of moral theology and what, in fact, a revealed teaching about the moral life brings to moral philosophy is of great significance. I have just referred to Cardinal Cushing's motto, that they may know thee, No philosopher, no moral philosopher could claim that his science would open up a knowledge about the God of Jesus Christ, that is to say a personal knowledge whereby we would come to know the Father of Jesus Christ. Moral theology will make that claim and yet It will proceed, borrowing a great deal from what the moral philosopher teaches us, in a way that dogmatic theology does not. There is no human analog for divine faith. Today, some writers who tend to confuse the notion of theology and religious studies speak as if what the theologian talks about is open to any right thinking inquirer sufficiently informed by the principles of comparative religion to take only one example, or perhaps psychology to take another example, or perhaps sociology. This is not the case, and this is for reasons that we will illumine in just a moment. And the reason for that, of course, is there is no source of knowledge about the mysteries of God, for example, the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, the virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the sacramental order, the forgiveness of sins. There is no source of knowledge for these mysteries other than the revelation that Christ communicates to his apostles, and which is safeguarded in the Church of Christ, safeguarded especially by the Bishop of Rome, who has by divine authority the charge to strengthen his brethren, especially his brother bishops, to ensure that the articles of faith remain in the world. When we turn to moral theology, and ask the question, does the Christian religion forbid murder? Does the Christian religion forbid theft? Does the Christian religion forbid adultery? The answer to those questions would be, well, yes, it does, and at the same time, the Christian moral theologian is in the unique and privileged position to say, you do not have to be a believer to recognize that murder, theft, and adultery. Go against. The law, if you will, of human nature that goes against the law which to this day most civilized societies continue to insist upon, indeed to provide sanctions for, in order to preserve the common good. And it is the fact then that Christian moral theology has an analog in moral philosophy, indeed, in the natural law that makes it very, very important for us to insist on what is specific about Christian moral theology, that is to say, to show how Christian moral theology is inserted into God's divine revelation. St. Thomas Aquinas did this by insisting that moral theology forms part of what he called the Sacra Doctrina. Sacra Doctrina is Aquinas' Latin term for every truth that is taught to us by God. It's fair to say that a rough equivalent term, though not a precise one, would be sacred revelation or divine revelation. The Sacra Doctrina then embraces not only truths about God, about Christ, about the Church, about the sacraments, the Sacra Doctrina also embraces truths about human conduct, truths about what John Paul II calls the good of the human person. The reason that Aquinas is able to make this affirmation is a strong one, It is not simply his particular outlook or theological perspective, something that he happened to think would be a nice proposal. No, as a model theologian, indeed as the prince of theologians, Aquinas is able to make this affirmation because he knew that the whole Christian tradition accepted that God's revelation in Christ encompasses not only talk about divine things, that is, what we are to believe about God, about Christ, about the saints, about Our Lady, about the church, about the angels, about the sacraments, but also about what is to be done, about the kind of life that the Christian is expected to live. Hardly any Christian believer could come away from the most elementary catechetical instruction or from any sermon and not recognize the great Christian commandment given to the followers of Christ is to love one another as I have loved you and from that commandment flows a whole world of specific activity, specific kinds of activity that breaks down what it means to love the neighbor as I have loved you or to love one another as I have loved you. So Aquinas then, by insisting that the Sacra Doctrina embraces instruction about human conduct, about the good of the human person, is simply doing the work of the theologian, which is to make explicit that which is itself contained in divine revelation. And it is for this reason that the moral theologian likes to insist that moral theology is not ethics. On the European continent there is usually made a very sharp distinction between la morale, morals if you will, and ethics, morals, moral theology or moral instruction corresponds to a whole vision of life Ethics, on the other hand, is usually understood as a more restricted approach to human conduct or behavior in which certain norms or precepts or guidelines are set forth as ways of, as it were, shaping or challenging or directing human freedom. Ethical discourse, then, is usually considered to be of a more narrow kind, than a moral discourse which takes account of, if you will, the big picture. And it is that big picture that is going to govern and in fact is these lectures, it in fact is the inspiration behind the breakdown that I have just given you of the six pieces why we have to look at things like natural law, eternal law, the human person, we have to look at all of those elements of the big picture because we are involved in a discussion of la morale, we are involved in a discussion of morality, if you will, but not with the rather brittle connotation that that word has come to receive in English, but in a gentler and perhaps more profound meaning of a complete instruction about the good of human life or the good of the human person. To recapitulate here then, moral theology forms part of the Sacra Doctrina. The Sacra Doctrina then is God's self-communication to us about everything that we need to know in order to achieve our end as Christian believers. Secondly, moral theology is not ethics precisely because its aim is broader with respect to the matters that it treats, and it is certainly not philosophical ethics, precisely because it borrows from the Sacra Doctrina truths which only God can communicate, which only God can reveal to us, and these truths situate moral theology put it within the larger context of man's vocation indeed makes out of moral theology part of the fulfillment of what Jesus wished for his disciples, indeed prayed for his disciples, that they may come to know the Father, that they might come to share in the life that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoy for all eternity. This knowledge, ut cognoscante, cognoscere, the Latin verb, is a knowledge that bears connotations of personal union. It is a knowledge of friendship. When I come to say that I know my friend, the implication is that I know him or her and that I love the friend. The knowledge then introduces one into the larger, affective world of friendship, of union. And this is the case with the knowledge that moral theology offers us, and is certainly an example of what makes it specifically different from moral philosophy, because moral theology aims to give us what it is we need in order to become a friend of God. We're taught by God not simply to master a technique, such as the very admirable technique being demonstrated in this room, taping. Still more admirable, perhaps, will be the fact that these lectures will appear on the Internet. All of this is an example of technological advancement that can serve our well-being, but it does not perfect in an ultimate way our well-being. The only thing that perfects in an ultimate way human nature, our desires, our wants, of course, is not more technological advancement, but is a love of friendship and ultimately a love of friendship with God. And so when God instructs us The meaning of the word doctrina, he provides us with a doctrine. It's a doctrine about friendship. It's a doctrine which invites us into communion with him. and This is the third element of moral theology that is important for us to know, the reason for learning about right human conduct, the reason for discovering the good of the human person and discovering it truthfully and without any mistakes, it's a terrible thing to make a mistake about the good of the human person, is not simply to become a better person, it is rather to become a friend of God and to enjoy the union with God that that friendship promises. One of my Dominican confreres, now deceased, Father Thomas Gilby, who himself was a great lecturer, great moral theologian, author of many books, especially in Christian political theory, once observed a stonecutter in England, fell asleep at the job while engraving a headstone for someone recently deceased, and instead of putting what had been requested here lies John in blessed immortality, put here lies John in blessed immorality. While that might seem to be an embarrassment at first face, the fact of the matter is that the mistake betrayed something of a truth, which is that the end of the moral life is not to be more moral, not to become moralistic, it's not moralism, it surpasses morality. Morality gives way to a state that is beyond it, and that state of course the New Testament calls friendship, union with God, beatific communion, or if you will, beatific fellowship. It's the consortium, the communio, that the saints enjoy with God. The fourth feature of Christian moral theology that is worth our consideration is that because Christian moral theology is guided by divine truth and because it is able to participate in the Sacred Doctrina, it enjoys a certitude greater than that of the moral philosopher. Which is to say that what the moral theologian is able to teach about the good of the human person, about human conduct, is of a kind that enjoys the authority of a revealed teaching. On this matter, that seems to me there is a great deal of confusion today, especially among church people. Hardly anyone who is following this course has not heard of the challenges that some theologians and indeed journalists and their followers have made to church teaching. It is sometimes thought that the teachings of the Catholic moral theologian should be subject to a higher review based upon the principles of rational demonstration or rational critique. If it just seems implausible that a certain way of acting is not good, then there are many people who would be willing to reject the church's teaching about this or that action. One thinks of the world of sexual morality especially. And the fact of the matter is, of course, that the reason why the confusion arises is because it is not fully appreciated to what extent the teachings of the moral theologian, to the effect that they are informed by the magisterium, enjoy The authority that attaches itself to the sacra doctrina, that attaches itself to Christ's promise to the church that what is taught within the church about the good of the human person and about human conduct will not fail, will not be false, will not in some way go against the good of the human person, but can only develop and illumine the good of the human person, can only give right direction for human conduct, and in the end bring us to that knowledge, ut cognoscant that they may know thee, that knowledge of moral truth that ushers us into the friendship with God, which is our perfection and happiness. This does not mean that there isn't room for thinking and indeed the moral theologian has to be clear and has to think through the truth that he sets before his audience. And this is perhaps more so the case today when some of the moral questions that are posed to the theologian are of a complex and very difficult kind. Here I'm thinking of questions in bioethics. The right kind of procedure, for example, to address some medical, uh, some problem with, for example, a newly conceived child, or treatments for ectopic pregnancies, things of that kind. So there is need for sound thinking, but the thinking can never trump, as it were, the principles that are given over to the moral theologian and which principles, foundational in their nature, about the good of the human person, about the good of human sexuality, about the good of human life, about the good of human society, about the transactions that go on within the city. All of these things that form part of the Church's moral magisterium are true, and we know they are true not only by reason, but because of the authority that attaches to them from the Sacra Doctrina. And this gives the moral theologian's instruction an entirely different cast and color than that which the moral philosopher is able to achieve. For by definition, the moral philosopher is limited to what human reason can discover, what human reason can establish about the good human life. I think at this moment it would be good then to step back and recapitulate briefly the nature of this inquiry of this moral theological science. First of all, I have to insist upon indeed it is a science attached to divine revelation. It is a theological science, properly speaking, because it takes its principles from that which God communicates to us about the good life, about human conduct, and about divine friendship. And for this reason, though the moral theologian borrows arguments from the moral philosopher, and while the moral theologian surely is attentive to what, if you will, secular ethics have to say, and the information that secular ethics brings to his or her attention. The fact of the matter is that moral theology is a properly theological science. It's a properly theological science because its principles are drawn from what God has revealed about the human person, about that person's ultimate destiny, and about the way that leads to achieving that destiny. And all of this, thirdly, is possible precisely because Christ has communicated to us not only a doctrine about who he is, about who sent him, what it is that he has established within the world, the Church for our salvation, but he has established also a rule of love, a norm of love, and that that revelation governs everything that the Christian believer is asked to do, everything that the Christian believer must do, and fourthly, that the moral theologian's authority is confirmed to the extent that he or she works in conformity with the church's magisterium because the magisterium enjoys by divine decree by God's own plan and purpose for us an infallible authority with respect to matters that bear upon human life and human well-being. All of this means then that the discussion that we are about to begin here in the next five lectures is one that is properly theological and that it belongs now to the big picture of the Sacra Doctrina. And I would like, by way of conclusion, to make some remarks about the big picture of the Sacra Doctrina into which this moral theological science is inserted. The big picture of the Sacra Doctrina into which the moral theologian finds himself inserted, begins of course with God, who is the source of this saving instruction, saving doctrine, holy teaching, all arguably translations for Sacra Doctrina. And it is the God that Christ reveals to us, which is to say, the Godhead of which he, by reason of his divine person, is one of, It is the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the symbol that I use is the triangle with the circle inside it to insist now that this is the God of Christian revelation, the God whom Christ reveals as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the God that Christ reveals to us as a Father, a God who is a spirit sent by the Son and the Father into the world, and then Christ's own teaching about his own divinity, in which he identifies himself with the Son, the second in God, the one who is sent into the world in that special and unique way that we call the incarnation. That is to say that he comes among us as one like ourselves in all things, except sin. It is then the Trinitarian God who is the source of everything that, in these, that exists, that is the source of everything that is salvific in the world, and it is this God who is the source, ultimately, of the instruction that we call moral theology. The God who is the Alpha, if you will, and the origin of everything that exists, is for that very reason also the perfection of everything that exists, the omega, if you will. The final point, it is the same God who welcomes us and invites the human creature into communion with him. It is the same God for whom Everything that is created, that he has created, exists for his praise and glory. Nothing exists outside of that which is dependent upon God's creative power. It could be misleading if it were to lead you to think that there's a world that exists for people who want to pay no attention to God. That's simply false. The fact of the matter is nothing exists outside of what God has made and continues to keep in existence. This is a very, very important prenote to our discussions about moral theology because it helps us to avoid the temptation of thinking that moral theological discourse or the claims of moral theology, are meant only for people who want to accept them, are meant only for people who want to believe that there is a God. Worse still, are meant only, say, for adherents of one or another Christian confessions. Worse still, rules only for Catholics who have to accept all of this. And that temptation has to be resisted strongly and resisted firmly. And the place to begin resisting it is here in a statement about divine creation and God's creative power and his creative being, if you will, which arguably has nothing to do with moral theology. It's the sort of thing that the dogmatic or systematic theologian would talk about and yet it is an indispensable and starting point for what it is that we are about to do in these following lectures. The other element in the big picture that is of importance to moral theology is that within the creation of everything that exists, sun and moon, pebbles, rocks, seas, trees, the snow that's falling here in New England for the first time this season, the chairs, the dogs, the turnips, the canaries, the alligators, everything that forms part of the created universe, that within that creation, those creatures that God has blessed with intelligence enjoy a privileged place. I say, those creatures, because we must think about the angels, they, for reasons that are their own, have no need of instruction in moral theology. Their choice about the good was made once and for all, as you know, but when it comes to the creature that we call man, the human person, if you will, that creature enjoys a special place precisely because he is endowed with intelligence and with the concomitant gift of freedom. And it is, as the Vatican Council reminded us, text that our Holy Father John Paul II returns to frequently, it is this creature, the only creature on earth, to exclude the angels, that God has created for himself. Man, the only creature whose destiny is to return to the God who created him in a way that is suitable and adapted to the kind of creature that the human person is, namely one who knows and loves. And that knowledge and love is ordered to a fulfillment, indeed to a perfection, that only God can realize, indeed only God can offer. It is possible to define moral theology as the science of man's destiny. It's possible to talk about moral theology as the discourse that points us on our way to heaven would be possible to define these lectures as instruction, solid instruction I hope, on how to know God and to love God. The in point of insertion of our discussion within this big picture falls here it's possible to talk about moral theology as the science or the instruction or the discourse about the way to God. And that brings me back to the image of Cardinal Cushing, former Archbishop of Boston, that hangs in this room, and his Episcopal motto, ut cognoscant te, that they may know thee. And elsewhere in John's Gospel Christ illumines that prayer by announcing that he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Our discussions then in the following five lectures will attempt to show how it is that Christ, presents himself to us, indeed offers himself to us as our life, indeed our eternal life with him and the Holy Spirit and the Father, how he is and presents himself to us as the truth, the true saving doctrine or instruction about how to live our lives. A truth that is able to be spoken, debated, examined, explicated, defended, indeed even, God forbid, rejected. But a truth which in the end is more than a set of principles, precepts, obligations, suggestions, pointers, rather a truth that is a person, a truth that is Christ himself. And because Christ is the life and the truth, he is able to show us the way, It is Christ who is able to map out, as it were, the way for the whole human race and for each one of us. He is the way that the Father has established for our happiness and perfection. And in the end, he is the way that makes moral theology a special science a special kind of investigation because it invites us to enter in to the very mystery of Christ himself. During the remaining lectures in this series, I trust that we will be able to illumine for you the important features of this way so that at the end you will be in a better position to find that way, to walk it, and to come to everything that God promises to those who accept this truth that has come into the world in his Son, Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.